Yeah, this is a pretty forgettable episode. Which is funny because, you know, it's basically the Quester tapes, right? Oh, and also the motion picture. John Meredith Lucas, who some of you will recognize, was working on Mannix at the time as a writer-director. And he would wander by the set, and Gene Kuhn would occasionally be like, hey, they'd just kind of chat, you know, have some coffee, whatever. After a while, Kuhn was like, so, hey, you know, John. John's like, what up? Kuhn's like, you want to make an episode? Like, you want to write a script? Meredith's like, sure, why not? And so he did, and this is it. Uh, written by him. He would also write Patterns of Force, Elan of Troyes, and That Which Survives, two of which I don't recognize by name, and the other one is Elan of Troyes. Obviously, those of you who do not recognize the name, this gentleman will actually take over as producer for the second half of Season 2. I'm not 100% sure of the exact point in time. I think I mentioned before I've been having trouble nailing down exactly when Kuhn left, but that will be happening later this season one way or the other. This is, of course, uh, directed by Mark Daniels. You're probably wondering, Laura, can I at least have a face to put to this? Well, good news. If you see the, the shot of Roy Kirk in this episode when they pull up the historical file, there's the image. That's actually Mark Daniels right there. So there you go. You know what he looks like now. This episode's... there... It feels, I, I hate to say this because I'm, I'm talking from the experience of, you know, decades of consuming fiction, but the fact is, I look at this and I just see a lot of, well, I've seen that before and I've seen that before. So, yeah, you know. The episode which this rem most reminds me of is actually Charlie X, which I guess I'll talk about in a moment here. Because this thing is super dangerous, right? It's mega powerful, it has mass devastation it can do. Uh, it hits them with a blast that is the equivalent of 90 torpedoes, which is insane. Then they reveal that that only knocks them down by a fifth of their shields, so they can take five of those shots without losing their shields. And actually count them out, too. The bolts are also going up warp 15. So I've already mentioned that doesn't bother me. They, they did kind of reinvent the warp scale, and the idea of the warp scale just kind of going linearly up, sure. I mean, they even did that in STO, if you're thinking about it, instead of the more curved scale, which uh, TNG and DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise would all use. I only bring this up, though, because this Warp 15, as demonstrated, is almost double the speed of what they could actually accomplish here. By the way, I did actually bother to look up the technical manual, just the one for TOS, which has different values than the one for TNG, because of course it does. And I just bring that up. Because I looked it up, and the, the values they give are nowhere near close to what is actually shown in the show, so I'm just going to kind of eject that and not think about it ever again. I do want to mention, though, why... One of the things I found in researching the warp speed, and I know some of you are like, Lore, we don't care about the speed of ships. Well, I do. It actually bothers me when you establish that people can go with speed and then completely ignore it. If I was like, all right, I'm going to head to the grocery store, and then I walk out the door, and then I'm there in seconds. Well, that's a little bit bothersome, isn't it? Or how about if I'm in a situation... And, of course, now I'm going to have to come up with a good analogy. How about in a situation where I hop in a car, and I'm like, okay, I need to head over to... I need to head to work. But it's going to take me a while to get there, hours to get there. And as I'm driving along, another car drives by and is driving by so much faster than me, I can barely see it. It's blurring past me. Now, I can go that speed, too, but I'm not, because I'm an idiot. 
Like the inconsistency is 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 what really bothers me more than anything else. Now you're probably thinking, well, hang on, what does this have to do with your research? I discovered that they actually had like measures and general speed things that were written up as a guide. Like all the writers had access to this guide and it had a bunch of stuff like species and technology and warp speeds and all of these things that are a part of the setting so that any new writer who comes in to write an episode can have a reference material, which is really smart and makes perfect sense. It's just, and this is also mentioned in the aforementioned tech manual, basically all the writers completely ignored that reference. Why? You had it right there. Why? Whatever. Anyway, so these Warp 15 bolts are coming in. I have a question for you while we're talking about stupid things. Why is, why is this probe so damned strong? I mean, I know it, it's because it's V'ger, and V'ger would also be this ridiculously stupidly powerful thing. But why is this probe so strong? Keep in mind that in this exact case, unlike V'ger, we know exactly what probes it used to be and what their function was to find soil samples, sterilize them, and bring them back for collection. This naturally necessitates the, the ability to wipe out planets, go super fast, and destroy millions of billions of lives. Why? Where did this come from? How is this thing being powered by this super mega gun? We could probably do a few logic loops in order to explain this, but I've always been bothered by that. It's just super powerful because it needed to challenge the crew. Which... <sighs> I mean, I don't think it's necessary, to be blunt. I think there are other ways they could have made this work without making it Charlie X again. As I already mentioned, this episode most reminds me of Charlie X, and I'm going to go and go into why. Because Nomad is voiced by the Metron! Dun, dun, dun. Actually, the episode goes way out of its way to emphasize the dun 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 when they reel that the, the probe is, in fact, a probe. I know, I know. The, the idea is that they know it's a small thing, and they figured there were tiny aliens inside, but honestly, the idea that it's just a machine is not that, that surprising of a re reveal. Anyways, so... It's a child with a gun. It's a child with a gun. Now, that's a good story type. It, it can be very terrifying. I've talked about this in TOS. I've talked about this. This is why I reference Charlie X so much. Because... Or, or uh, Square of Gothos, so this is the third time we've done this. Because when you have someone who has tremendous power and doesn't understand it, or the nature of what it's doing, that is terrifying in its own right. Because there's no malice involved, there's no malevolence, there's no mwahaha cruelty. Instead it's more just a child playing without understanding what playing actually means in context. Which is horrifying. And, and very well presented in both the previous episodes I mentioned. Not so much here. I do think it's one of the better aspects of the episode, the, the child with the gun thing. Uh, McCoy and his insistence on being pissy at this thing is basically the equivalent of yelling at a child with a gun. Which is just, and, and anyone who gets yelled at is going to get pissed off in return just because of human nature, and then they respond in kind, and blah, blah, blah. And you'll notice it's demonstrated in the episode, and this is what Spock interrupts uh, twice, actually, in order to try and save people's lives, the probe, Nomad, just doesn't understand emotion properly, and so it responds with firing the gun, you know, using its tremendous power to cause issues. Yeah, so that is properly terrifying. Spock, of course, understands this very quickly, and Nomad is also, you know, rather than being, oh, I am all supremely powerful, it's, it's just completely lacking understanding. It goes all the way from the bottom of the ship to the bridge, uninterrupted somehow, 
in order just to, to find Uhura and say, what are you doing? I'm singing. What is singing? Explain music to me. Screw it, I'm just going to beam into your brain. Yeah, so this is a good time to bring up the Uhura thing. What the crap? This... So, it, the way they say it in the episode is that it wiped her brain. No damage, just complete erasure of her memories. Uh-huh. Now, that's not really what they display, because she does actually speak, you know, a language, and she does have a few abilities to function, but she is she's supposed to be blank-slated. Okay. I'm kind of with that, except I'm incredibly not with that. Number one, he just killed Uhura. No, really, Uhura's dead. From this point on, it is Uhura 2, a new, completely separate sentient entity, which is completely disconnected from the first one, that has now grown in the absence of the previous. I'm sorry, but if you absolutely destroyed someone's mind and then replaced it with another one, that's a new person. There are connections, there's gradients, and there might be similarities, but that is effectively a new person. So now we have Uhura 2. That's neat. Terrifying, but neat. And again, child with a gun. So that's messed up, especially since it's portrayed as a comedic thing in almost the entire episode. In fact, by the end of the episode, they act like everything's just wrapped up like a pat TV ending. It's okay. We've got her back up to college level. Uh-huh. It wiped her brain. She's gone. Uhura 2 is up to college level and will now be able to theoretically be able to continue her job. Although that brings up another problem. If you can re-educate someone within a few weeks from nothing... That brings up every problem. Why does schooling exist at that point? Why, why even have Starfleet Academy? If she can do her job on the bridge of this Constitution-class heavy cruiser, which I remind you is the biggest and strongest ship in the fleet right now, since I don't think the Dreadnought ever becomes canon. I could be wrong about that. And I know the Constellation doesn't show up. The Constellation-class doesn't show up yet. So with all these provisos, she is able to do this difficult and, care and wonderful job with a few weeks of work with, you know, this see the dog run, run, dog run, and some random tapes which they have lying around in the med bay. What? <sighs> I have seen multiple sources try to do the hoops. I keep doing this. I don't know, I don't know if you watch my, my movie stuff. I established this uh, when I was discussing the movies for this year's cycle. In the, it's the idea of how many loops you have to do. I think I mentioned this in Enterprise as well. How many loops you have to do to explain something, right? That's the idea. It's the visual metaphor. You know, one loop means you just have to come up with one quick explanation that's only one step away from what's shown on the screen, and that explains things. That's fine. But the more loops you get, the more I'm just kind of raising my eyebrow. The more, in other words, the more we have to fill in the gaps for the writer, the worse the writing is. Usually, because as, as with everything, there's no such thing as concrete absolutes when it comes to writing, but you get the idea. In this case, I feel like we would have to have at least two or three loops to explain this, and that's what I've seen several people do, which... <sighs> now, all that being said, I did see one person that came up with a theory that is only one loop, one, one hoop to jump through, and that is um, the idea that it didn't wipe her memory at all, despite the fact that they say that repeatedly, and they mention her mind being blanked and everything, but they were wrong! It's actually just temporarily blocking her memory. That is admittedly only one loop, although I would argue that probably qualifies as two just because we have to ignore everything that's said and shown in the episode. 
But still, that's as close as I've ever gotten to making this make any damn sense. The fact that it's portrayed as comedy is even more aggravating. Poor Uhura. Poor Nichelle Nichols, I should say. Then, Nomad raises the dead. What? I... Moving on. And then we find out that Spock is very well ordered, of course. Ha ha ha. And he's now going to perform a mind meld with an alien probe. What? The... I can't even put into words how much this just kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. This is kind of like trying to feed energy into a computer by shoving an omelet into the circuit board. Like, there's a similarity there. Fuel, the concept of that, and something that is used to power the systems. It's just, it's such a completely different type of system that you're using incredibly the wrong tools and resources for it. But no, he somehow manages to mind meld with a probe, which is part Earth and part a super alien. And you see why this episode is just driving, driving me up the wall. I can ignore a lot of crap, right? Cloud effect. Dumb premise, good episode. But nothing in this episode convinced me that it's good. Remember I mentioned almost jokingly earlier that patterns of force and that which survives. I don't recognize either of those. That's not a joke. I, I do not recognize those episodes by name. When this episode came up next and I was looking it up, my first reaction was, I don't remember this episode. Which one is this one? And then I read the quick synopsis over in the captain's logbook, and it's like, there's an alien probe that shows up that used to be an Earth probe, and I'm like, I don't remember that, other than the obvious motion picture thing. This is an extremely forgettable episode, in part because it doesn't have anything really holding it up. There's no good character moments. There's no good suspenseful concepts. There's no development of mystery. There's no great action sequence. There's no theme or concept that's that's something to chew on. It's just, here's a kid with a gun and a whole lot of nonsense. So then it improves their ship to go to warp 11. Which, uh, yeah, okay, I'm with that. Why didn't you just leave it that way? I mean, you don't have to always be at warp 11, right? It would be nice to have the option, I'm just saying. But no, we'll get rid of it. And then we find out that we're also aping the Doomsday machine here, or the Doomsday device, whatever it's called, because... It's the Doomsday device. I'm sorry, I'm staring at the episode list right here. Because now it's going to go on this path of death, sterilizing planets until it gets to Earth, and it's going to kill everyone on Earth. Okay, cool, cool. Four red shirts die in this episode. Do you know that? Hmm. Now, I said there was nothing good in this episode. I kind of lied. There's one thing I like about this episode, and that is Kirk talking the computer down. Now, this is the second time he's really done this. The first time being, what are little girls made of? Remember that? The androids? Now you're thinking, well, but what about Landru? As I think I made clear in my discussions about Landru and Return of the Archons, I don't think that really counts. Shouting at a computer that it's wrong doesn't really strike me as talking a computer down. Whereas in this episode, he actually does use logical progression to make across his point. I am not your creator. I am a biological being. You didn't catch this. And you didn't correct this. That's three errors. His whole speech about you did the error, then the second error, then the third error. That's good. It's it's good. It's the only good part of the episode, and it barely flounders it up. Which, at the end of the day, leaves me just with a boring, bad episode, which I don't have anything to say about. I lied. There's one other thing. The visual effects on Nomad are actually quite good. Like, legit. It's impressive how much they managed to make that thing look like it's actually hovering as they move it through the set. So, huge props to the 
props department and the effects department on managing to get that effect going. Most of the time they show it so the bottom of the top is out of frame, so someone can hold or uh, carry it. But the scenes where it actually moves without any visible thing, definite props there. That's good. And that's what salvages this. <laughs> I, I don't think this actually is a lamentation, but I would say this is probably a two-off episode. You know, we've got lamentation one-off. This is a two-off. It's not absolute dreck. There are some decent elements to it, and it's not, you know, absolutely horrific. It doesn't have anything special about it that makes it really noteworthy. It's just kind of forgettable. So it's going on the skip list. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably never watching this one again. A lot of that coming up lately. What do you guys think? I've actually never heard anyone talk about this episode except for theory crafting. So in terms of quality, what do you guys think? Is this on the skip list for you, or is this on the rewatch list for you? I'm actually pretty curious, as always. Whoop, wrong direction. <laughs> I've made an error. No, no, error. <laughs>